Ubisunt. Where are they? We say it, sometimes even in church. We list off the dead. Or we might say, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so and so-and-so, knowing that they're long gone. But what happens when they suddenly answer? What happens when our Ubisunt isn't anymore, where are they or where did they go? But, oh my God, they're right here. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Inferno. We're way down in hell. We're in Canto 10 of Inferno. We're at lines 22 through 51. Let me just remind you where we are. We have stood endlessly before the gates of Dis. We came over the swamp of sticks. We saw the wrathful and the sullen who we forget about all the time. We saw the wrathful. There were demons and furies and, oh my gosh, there was the threat of the Medusa. All that went away when a heavenly messenger came down and pinged the gates open with his little wand. We walked through with our pilgrim and his guide Virgil into a world of burning sarcophagi raised up like Roman tombs. We turned right. The sarcophagi are now on our left the walls of Dis, or the backside of the walls of Dis, are on our right, and we've been walking in a secret path, threading our way along until suddenly someone appears. Inferno, Canto 10, lines 22 through 51. Oh, Tuscan, who is still alive in this city of fire, goes about speaking such courteous words. Pray be pleased to stay a moment in this place. Your elocution makes it evident you're one of those from the noble fathers of that city to which I might have caused too much damage. So suddenly did the sound of this one come out of one of the chests that it startled me and made me pull a little closer to my guide. And he said to me, Turn around! What are you doing? Look at Ferranata right there, who has pulled himself upright. You can see all of him from the waist up. I had already set my eyes on his as he rose with his chest and brow pitched up as if he held hell in great contempt. Meanwhile, the sure and animated hand of my guide was nudging me toward his sepulcher, even as he said to me, make sure you count your words. When I was at the foot of his tomb, he glanced at me and then, almost with disdain, asked me, who were your ancestors? I had a great desire to comply and hid nothing from him, but told him everything, which caused him to lift his eyebrows a little. Then he said, oh, They were stark enemies to me, my family, and my faction. So much so that I had to drive them out twice. If they were cast out, I replied to him, they came back from every place, both the first time and the other. Your type, on the other hand, has never learned that art. Okay, that's where we're going to stop it. Right there. The appearance of Ferenata rising up out of the tomb. If you remember, Virgil and Dante had been in a little spat about things that Virgil said that Dante wanted to know and then things that maybe Dante was hiding from Virgil. And they got in a little spat 
And then suddenly, out of the blue, comes Ferenata. And I should just say, before we get into the passage itself, that it is very strange in the Florentine because, you know, Virgil and Dante the Pilgrim have been talking back and forth. And then all of a sudden, these words, O Tuscan, just appear out of nowhere. When you first read the poem, you could easily think that this is Virgil turning to the pilgrim and saying, Oh, Tuscan, just calm down. You know, get with it. The words just seem to come out of nowhere, and they are shocking and weird. I also should say that I worked a long time on trying to get Farinata's voice right. I didn't know whether he should be a basso profundo. Of course, he's this big historical figure, as we'll discuss. And, I, you know, I wanted to give him all this resonance, and I finally settled on... Well, the voice of a jerk, because I think Farinata is a bit of a jerk. So, let's get to the passage. First, let's just talk about Farinata before we talk about any of the words this passage. We're talking about a big historical presence. We're talking about Manente dei Uberti, who went by the name Farinata. Manente dei Uberti was born in the early 1200s in Florence to an extraordinarily prominent family, the Ubertis. By 1239, maybe even just, oh, maybe just even in his late 20s, depending on when he, exactly he was born, he becomes the head of the Ghibelline party in Florence. Remember, Dante is one of the Guelphs. The Guelphs have split into white and black, but Dante still comes out of the Guelph tradition. This is the other side of the war. These are the Ghibellines. These are the ones who support or are supported by the Holy Roman Empire against the papacy and against France. By this point, 1239, Farinata is the head of the Ghibelline party in Florence, and by 1248, Ferranata has expelled the Guelphs, burned their palaces, torn down some of their high towers, burned even shops owned by Guelph merchants. Not such a good act as far as Dante is concerned. He can do all of this, Ferranata and the Ubertis and the Ghibelline party, because they are supported by Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor. Unfortunately, Frederick II dies two years later, in 1250, Manfred takes over. We're going to talk much more about Manfred when we get up in Purgatorio. Manfred takes over. Let's just say a new Holy Roman Emperor comes in, still sympathetic to the Ghibelline cause, but things don't go well. The Guelphs return, and by 1258, the Ghibellines are expelled from Florence, including Ferranata and his family. They amass fortunes and soldiers and money. They team up with the Sienese and in 1260 fight the famed Battle of Monteperti, which we talked about endlessly at the beginning episodes of this podcast. The Battle of Monteperti was a terrible, bloody battle. Uh, again, Brunetto Latini's poem is partly about the aftermath of the Battle of Monteperti, much political horror goes down here. We're going to come back to the Battle of Monteperti later in Inferno. But for right now, let's just say there they all are, the Ubertis, all of them fighting the Guelphs. And in fact, they put the Guelphs down. They defeat them and drive them back out of Florence again. The Ghibellines, along with the Holy Roman Emperor, think, 
Hey, Florence, look at all this trouble. It's not worth saving. Let's burn it to the ground. Ferenata, according to the stories, steps forward and says, no, let's not burn Florence to the ground. Even some of the stories that run around say that they wanted to burn it and salt the ground so that nothing could ever be where Florence was. Ferenata stops them and stops them because he loves Florence, because he thinks it's worth saving, even though he himself has been part of the exiling of the Guelphs, of the burning of their towers and palaces and even their stores. He doesn't want the whole town destroyed. Unfortunately, the Ghibellines don't stay in power very long. At the Battle of Benevento, uh, they are defeated. Manfred is defeated. The Guelphs come back in power. And by 1264, just slightly before the Battle of Benevento, Farinata dies and is buried in Santa Croce, eventually with his wife, who's also there. And, well, the Guelphs get back in power. The Guelphs are bent on political revenge. In 1283, the Guelphs have Farinata and his wife declared heretics. Their remains are dug up from Santa Croce, and they are unceremoniously dumped in a pit in unconsecrated ground, thereby ending Farinata's tomb and potentially putting Farinata here as a heretic in hell. But we're going to save that discussion for two episodes ahead. I just wanted to give you kind of the overview of Ferenata historically. Now, let's go back to that passage and look at it. First, let's talk about Ferenata as a twisted Christ figure. He is in this passage. He is a strangely bizarre figure with a twist on the death and resurrection of Christ. When Farinata stands up and says, oh, Tuscan, you know, your courteous words, please stay here a minute. And he says, your elocution makes it evident that you are one of those from the noble fathers of that city. What he's doing is he's actually quoting the Gospels in a twisted, weird way. Everyone says Guido de Pisa in the late 1320s writing commentaries on comedy and on Inferno have pointed this out. What he's doing is twisting the gospel story just a bit. This line, your elocution makes it evident, is a reference to the moment when St. Peter denies Christ for a second time. If you don't know the story, Jesus predicts that Peter's going to deny him three times before Jesus dies on the cross. And in fact, Peter does deny Christ three times because he doesn't mean he get caught up in the political violence. He himself doesn't want to be crucified for all sorts of reasons. In the second denial, Peter's outside at a fire and one of the people standing around says, hey, you must be one of his followers from Galilee, this guy that was just arrested, this Jesus, because you're speech makes you plainly so. That bit, your speech makes you plainly so, said of Peter, is in fact the twist on this. Your elocution makes it evident that you are one of those. So we have a twisted reference to St. Peter, to his denial of Christ. And the question, of course, inevitably will rise, will Dante do a similar betrayal in this passage? We have to wait a bit for that but it brings it up right at the first. And then, of course, he comes up. So suddenly did the sound of this one come up out of one of the chests, I said. 
It's really arc. It's that word arc again. And we have this kind of baptismal imagery. Surely you have seen this this notion of, of people standing in the water, let's say of Jesus standing in the Jordan and John the Baptist baptizing him. And he's kind of, you know, waist deep in the water of the Jordan as John the Baptist baptizes him. Surely you've seen paintings of this from the Middle Ages or even later. That seems to be a reference here because as I told you earlier, Noah's Ark is a baptismal reference in medieval iconology and that he comes up out of his Ark standing up gives him this weird, twisted, baptismal reference right behind him. And then, you know, Virgil says, turn around. I mean, Dante freaks out. Listen, I'd freak out too. I'm walking through a cemetery and one of the dead stands up and <laughs> too. I'd freak out too. Virgil says, what are you doing? Turn around. Look at Farinata right there who has pulled himself upright. This is a twisted reference to the resurrection of Christ. Here comes somebody rising up out of the tomb. Now, I want to tell you, I think there's a twist on this because the verb used there is reflexive. And it's why I have translated who has pulled himself upright. It's not that Faranatha is being resurrected by God. It's that he's, as it were, resurrecting himself. He's pulling himself upright in the tomb. But it is this strange reference to a body coming up out of the tomb. Of course, Faranatha is not in his body. He's a spirit. But we can see it. We can see that parallel with Jesus. You can see that parallel in any number of Renaissance and medieval paintings of Jesus coming up out of the tomb bodily standing there conquering, except this is Ferenata in hell. So there are all of these strange Christ references running around inside this passage with Ferenata. Do I think Ferenata is a Christ figure? No, 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 not at all. This is an infernal twist on it, an infernal twist on baptism, on Peter's denial, because Ultimately, you heard the passage. Dante's going to stand up for his family at the end of it. He's not going to make a betrayal. So it's a weird twist on Peter's betrayal, on baptism, on resurrection, on the whole bit. Such a powerful image set in this passage. All right, let's pass on and talk about something else. Let's talk about Ferenata and language. The very first thing that happens is that Ferenata calls attention to Dante's words. He calls them parlando honesto, that is, courteous words, noble words, honest speech. Um, I translate it as courteous words. Maybe courteous speech would be better. However, there's a reference going on here. Go back to Canto 2, line 113. Beatrice refers to Virgil's words as parlare honesto, same word, Honesto. In the way that Beatrice flatters Virgil, Ferenata flatters Dante the Pilgrim. I heard you. I heard your words. And they were courteous, noble, courtly words. And Ferenata speaks in an extraordinarily flowery way. I translated it as, pray be pleased to stay a moment in this place. Over and over again in his speech, it has this flowery, courtly, big, mm, bit of a jerk, lingo behind what he's saying. He's 
absolutely this noble high figure rising up with his chest up and his brow pitched up as if he held all of hell in contempt. Notice what Virgil says. Meanwhile, the sure and animated hand of my guide was nudging me toward his sepulchre, even as Virgil said to me, make sure you count your words. I mean, make sure you pay attention to what you say. But just think about that for one second. Count. This is a poetic reference. Poetry is counted. Syllables are counted. There's a reference to poetry running around underneath this passage. This is going to play out in the next episode of the podcast big time. But for now, just think. Virgil is telling a pilgrim who will become a poet to count his words, to count his syllables, to make his poetry. That's happening inside the passage in these words that Ferranata hears are reminiscent of Virgil's kind of speech, Virgil's kind of language. And finally, at the very end of the passage I read you, Dante slaps back at Ferranata and says if they were cast out... They came back from every place before the first time, uh, from both the first time and the other. But your type, on the other hand, has never learned that art, art, quell'arte, art, craft. Remember last time in the last episode, we had a reference to art? Here it is again, art. Now, of course, it means craft. Of course, it means skill set. But it's sitting right there, art, right before something else happens. I have to hold all this in abeyance because this is in the next episode. Why art would suddenly sit there right as it does, just right there. Let me say one other thing about the language used here. Ferranata says, you know, who were your ancestors? Chi for li maggior tui? Tui. He uses the informal form of address, tui. If you know anything about Romance languages, French, Italian, Spanish, or German, not a Romance language, you know that there are formal and informal words for you based on one's social class, standing, etc. And Veronata uses tui. You, you, you're, yeah, he's, it's a little, it's not a put down so much. I don't want to overstate the put down. When Dante replies to him with, they were cast out, they came back from every place, your type, Dante says, i vostri, vostri, the formal you. There are only three people in hell to whom the pilgrim uses the formal form of you. Ferranata is one. The fellow about to rise up next to him, Cavalcante, is the second. Next episode of the podcast, guy rising up right next to Ferranata in the tomb, Cavalcante. Dante also uses the formal form of you. And finally, when we get down to Brunetto Latini, Dante will use the formal form of you for him, Brunetto Latini, perhaps Dante's teacher, which brings up a giant question. It's always a question that sits in my mind. When Dante meets Virgil, he doesn't say the formal form of you. He says, Or se tu quel Virgilio, tu, tu, tu. He uses the informal form of address 
from the minute he meets Virgil. Now, there are reasons maybe for this. They're both poets, so they're comrades. They're, you know, they share a, they share a skill set. They share craft. But Virgil, you were my author, my master. And all that he says, great guide, all these words that he uses for Virgil, he never formally addresses him with the you. It's always the familiar to. I always find that curious. I always, I always want him to, you know, give Virgil the formal <laughs> address. And then Virgil say, oh, please, you know, use the two. That's what I want to happen if it's ridiculous. But in a very modern context, now there are ways that two is used for those of supreme worth in the Florentine. That may be what's going on here. It's just so curious that Ferranata and then two more figures get the formal address of you. Enough about language. Let's pass on to one more issue. Ferranata and politics. Notice what Ferranata says. He comes up out of the tomb and he says, O Tuscan. The first thing he says is he identifies the pilgrim by his region of Italy. Your elocution makes it evident. Oh, he's just laying it on thick. You, the way you speak makes it evident that you're not just a Tuscan, but that you're a Florentine. Chaco, of course, was from Florence, may or may not have been a Florentine, but this connection seems bigger between Ferranata and Dante the Pilgrim. It seems like it's a more collapsed and more up-close dynamic between the two of them, knowing exactly where they came from. And remember, with Chaco, that's where the Ubisont was. It was back with Chaco with the gluttons when Dante said, okay, well, where's Ferranata? And he gave, went through an entire list of five different people. Where are they now? Look back. It's back in Canto 6, line 79 or so, right in there with Chaco. And Ferranata is the first one. And Chaco says, oh, they're in darker places. Well, here's the first one off that list coming up out of the tomb. And what is Ferranata's interest in all of this? Who were your ancestors? He's burning in hell. And what interests him <laughs> is who your family is. What side of the faction are you on? Whose team do you play on? It would be as if I were burning up <laughs> in a sarcophagus in hell and I came up because I heard someone passing me and I knew them to be an American and I stood up and I said, Republican or Democrat? It would be so strange. What, 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 that's what you're concerned with? Factionalism, tribalism, it goes straight to hell. It, la it lasts beyond death and is there sitting there in a burning chest. It doesn't end at the grave. Veronata is still caught in political problems. So Dante says, I had a great desire to comply and hid nothing from him. What, what, what just happened with Virgil? Virgil just said, and you'll get, to, you'll get satisfaction for the thing you're keeping back from me, that you're hiding from me. Dante the Pilgrim hides something from his guide Virgil. What? That he wants to know if there are any Florentines here? Is that it? He hides something from Virgil here with Ferranata, a stark enemy. On the other side of the political divide, he hides nothing. I told him everything, which caused him to lift his eyebrows a little bit. Is there something to this? 
Is there some way that our pilgrim is attempting honesty here in hell and expects to be rewarded for it? Hmm. Here's the problem, and here's what I think may be going on. Honesty, even personal honesty, even honesty of hiding nothing and telling him everything, it doesn't break the shame vendetta cycle of factionalism. It can't. In fact, what does Farinata do? He lifts up his eyebrows, and then he says, they were stark enemies to me and my family and my faction, so much so that I'd drive them out twice. Oh, ugh. wow. He is so proud of what he did. He is so proud of burning those Gelf palaces and burning the tearing down those Gelf towers, and he is so proud of all the bloodshed he caused. They were stark enemies to me, my family, and my faction. That's what matters. And then comes this. If they were cast out, I replied to Farinata, they came back from every place, both the first time and the other. Your type, on the other hand, has never learned that art. You're gone. They ain't no more ghibellines in Florence. So if you think that my side is mm, got the, mm, the lower hand, the bad hand on this, your side, ugh, you never even came back. You don't even know how to do that. You didn't learn how to do it twice the way my side did, which means that Dante the poet is making Dante the pilgrim still implicated in Florentine strife. It's not just that Ferranata is caught up in the strife of Florence, who were your ancestors. No, in fact, with this retort, so is our pilgrim. This factionalism has transcended even the boundary of death. What could ever overcome the desire of humans to divide into tribes and slit each other's throats. Let me ask one more question. Can Farinata hold hell in contempt? It says he rises up, his chest is up, his brow is up, as if he just doesn't care, as if he doesn't notice. This is our second great sinner. Nobody could call Jacko a great sinner. Nobody could call Filippo Argenti a great sinner. After Francesca, this is our second great sinner. Someone who seems, oh, like Francesca, almost above her own torments. He seems, too, almost above his own torments, or he is determined to stoically tough it out whatever it is, can he hold hell in contempt? Can he do this? Maybe. Let me give you an answer that I think might be true. Yeah, we have to go to Lucan, his Pharsalia, the book about the battle between Pompey and Caesar and Julius for who will become emperor. If you go out to book seven, that is the great battle at Pharsalia between Pompey and Julius. It's a bloody mess. I mean, oh, the battle, as Lucan describes it, is horrific. Pompey eventually rides away because he sees that his side is losing. And Julius, in order to celebrate, takes a breakfast table and sets it out amongst all the rotting corpses in the battlefield and enjoys his breakfast surrounded by the carnage he has caused. In the seventh book of the Pharsalia, one of the things that happens is Lucan is of highly divided mind. Lucan 
of course, hates the Civil War. He thinks the Civil War has torn Rome apart, and the aftermath of the Civil War is nothing but a shell of an empire that has been left behind. Lucan has an ambivalent relationship toward Julius. On the one hand, Julius is a dastardly figure who eats breakfast amongst the carnage and who relentlessly pursues Pompey in ways that make him almost demonic in his pursuit. And he is not necessarily a good figure. Yet, at the same time, Lucan is also a bit in awe of Caesar. Caesar, Julius's speeches are grand. They're sweeping. Sometimes they get a little muling and whiny, but mostly they're grand and sweeping. And I would argue that Lucan's attitude towards Caesar, both, both his dislike and his like of Caesar, that's putting it too simply, both his honoring Caesar and his disgust at Caesar's uh, warlike demeanor and the way that Caesar destroys the Republic and establishes the empire, that mm, come here, get away, push me, pull me attitude, I would say that Dante learned something from the Pharsalia, and that is you don't have to have a single attitude toward anything. And here, I think our poet is holding a strangely ambivalent attitude toward Farinata. Farinata is oh, the enemy of the Guelphs and the enemy of Dante's side, and yet at the same time, he is a great historical figure, a figure larger than life, a figure who, for Dante, saved Florence from being destroyed completely. So he's got a push-me-pull-me attitude toward him, and we see this figure almost in grandiose modern stoicism standing up out of his tomb, and yet at the same time, he's, well, petulant, petty. Who were your ancestors? He's a jerk. I had so much, so I had to drive them out twice, as if he's proud of it, as if this is the kind of stuff he excels at, bloodshed, like Caesar, somebody who is grander than history itself, and yet at the same time, oh, just a bloodthirsty tyrant. It's amazingly strange, twisted compression. This passage, in so few lines, does so much. And we're not done with Ferenata. In fact, we're not done with the heretics. In the next episode, someone else is going to stand up right next to Ferenata. But we got to save that for now. Let me read you the passage one more time, just to set it in your mind. O Tuscan, who is still alive in this city of fire, and goes about speaking such courteous words, pray be pleased to stay a moment in this place. Your elocution makes it evident that you are one of those from the noble fathers of that city, to which I might have caused too much damage. So suddenly did the sound of this one come out of one of those chests that it startled me, and made me pull a little closer to my guide. And he said to me, turn around, what are you doing? Look at Ferranata right there who has pulled himself upright. You can see all of him from the waist up. I'd already set my eyes on his as he rose with his chest and brow pitched up as if he held hell in great contempt. Meanwhile, the sure and animated hand of my guide was nudging me toward his sepulcher, even as he said to me, make sure you count your words. When I was at the foot of his tomb, he glanced at me and then, almost with disdain, asked me, 
Who were your ancestors? I had a great desire to comply and hid nothing from him but told him everything, which caused him to lift his eyebrows a little. Then he said to me, They were stark enemies to me, my family, and my faction. So much so that I had to drive them out twice. If they were cast out, I replied to him, they came back from every place both the first time and the other. Your type, on the other hand, has never learned that art. I hope you enjoyed this truncated episode of the podcast Walking with John Day. Truncated because really it needs to flow right into the next episode, which needs to flow right into the next episode. This interconnected set of conversations we're having, it's really tough to do it passage by passage. We've had a conversation between our Pilgrim and Virgil, now between our Pilgrim and Ferranata. We're about to have another conversation with our Pilgrim and another figure, and then back to Ferranata. It's all extraordinarily complicated and intertwined in these passages. So sorry about the truncated feel of it. But we got to just take it passage by passage in order to slow walk through it. Subscribe, connect with me on Twitter, hashtag at Walking with Dante. I'll see you. You can see me and come back because this isn't over. We got more, more heretics, more people standing up out of tombs and more problems with human factionalism in the next episode of Walking with Dante.